A Samuel died. He did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes with handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's give it up for Jen. New and notable here at Sojourn, having scripture readers, things to be excited about. The other thing to be excited about is we are in the Life of David series. And the Life of David series is important because David is the most compelling character of the entire Old Testament. We are gonna see this guy at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And today, we're gonna keep going with David's story. As Jamal introduced us to Saul last week, who was the first king of Israel, Saul has already sinned and sinned over and over and he's refused to repent refuse to truly repent. And because of that, God has taken his spirit from King Saul. In this series, we're gonna dive into and we'll learn lessons each week as we see these little pictures of David's life. But today, the picture that we're gonna learn about is what does God really care about? Have you ever wondered that? Like we know God cares about his glory. We know he like cares about the great commission, but what is God looking for when his eyes go back and forth across the world? What is God most concerned about with you? God's gonna answer that question today 
And we're gonna walk through the text today. It's a narrative. And so we're gonna, I invite you to imagine with me what's going on. Put yourself in the moment. Dive into the text with me. And the first way we dive in is to look at chapter 15, verse 35. It was the first thing we read and says a curious thing. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned him for him, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so our story opens, and the way to understand the rest of the text, the story opens with a brokenhearted God. Now, God doesn't change. He's self-satisfied. He has all he needs. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anything. But we see even before Jesus walks on earth, God has a full range of emotions. He has real reactions to his creation and the relationships he has with them. And the question is, why does, Saul, why does God regret Saul? Why is God upset too, not only Samuel? And the reason is God saved the people out of Egypt the Israelites. He gave a promise to their forefather, Abraham, not just that God would be their leader and king, but that God would be their father. And so them begging for a human king, they begged for King Saul. They begged for human leadership. They begged for a human ways of ruling. And by them begging for that king, they rejected the heart of God for their life. Look with me in Exodus 4, through 23. It'll be on the screen. And this is what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh. Listen to this language he uses. And Pharaoh had enslaved Israel for 400 years, making bricks in the deserts of Egypt. And this is what God told Moses to say. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go, not this nation go, not a people, not just some people I like, not some promised people, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. God is deathly, literally deathly serious about not just wanting to be king of a people, but to be their father to have an intimacy where your worship, your day-to-day -day life literally matters to God. And so we open with a broken-hearted God. But while there's a broken-heartedness, God has a plan, and he's gonna show you what he values through this plan. Verses one and two, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse, of Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. There's a time to mourn, and then there's a time for action. And apparently God is now ready for action. And when the Lord speaks to you and says it's time for action, it's time for action. So I want you to consider just as a aside here, what are you mourning right now? Is the season of mourning right in the middle that you need to stay? Or is it time like Samuel, that the voice of the Lord is calling to you, that it's time to rise and move to action? Israel had a horrible thing happen, a horrible thing. Their leader has fallen. The spirit of God has been pulled from him over his sin, his failure to repent. But even then, God is on the move. His plan will not be stopped by anyone's sin in any way. And so we see the most faithful man in Israel, Samuel, who's been decades of just killer service before God, instead of responding with faith, 
I'm ready to go, Captain. He responds with fear. He says, oh, oh, me? Me go anoint a new king? I get the reason, God, but you know this is treason, right? You know, if you anoint another king, well, one king is reigning, that's very dangerous for the anointer. <laughs> Lord, this is, a very, this is a suicide mission if Saul were to find out. And so God makes a plan. He gives Samuel cover, verse three. The Lord said, take the heifer with you and say, I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And some people struggle with this. Is God being deceptive or what's going on here? And I don't think he's being deceptive as much as he is pushing down irony on the situation. Because if you remember from last week, uh, Saul was told when you beat the Amalekites, just devote all of them to destruction, including all their best cattle and sheep and all that. And what'd Saul do? He didn't do that. He won the battle and kept all the best sheep and the cows. And when he got confronted by God and Samuel, he goes, oh, I, I just kept him to make a sacrifice to you, Lord. You're so great, which was a lie. He kept it for himself and for his soldiers. And so here's God enforcing Galatians 6, 7 on, in the situation. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So there's gonna be a sacrifice, all right, Saul. But in this sacrifice, I'm actually gonna anoint a brand new king. The irony is thick as Samuel rises, he obeys the Lord and heads to Bethlehem. And when he heads to Bethlehem, we need to remember a sacrifice was also a party. See, when you killed a sacrifice before the Lord, you would burn part of it to the Lord God and you would pray, but then you had the rest of this huge cow and there's no refrigeration. The cow has to be eaten then. So you invited your mom, your brother, your cousin, your neighbor, everybody you knew need to come to the party to eat this barbecue. We're going to sacrifice the Lord. And Samuel's been told to anoint a son of a nobody, Jesse. Look at verse four. Samuel did what the Lord has said. Lord, may it be sojourn church. We always want the Bible to say that about us. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they ask, do you come in peace? And it can seem like a weird question to us. We're like, oh, Samuel, this is like the good guy. He's the guy who lives at the temple. He's the guy who's guided us in righteousness. Why are they scared of him? I can give you at least three reasons for some uneasiness. Number one, if you live in a nowheresville, Kentucky, and the president of the United States shows up unannounced, it might be bad news. And this is even more than that. This is a prophet of the living God. So the elders come out and meet him outside of town and ask him, hey, Samuel, um, great, you're here. Really excited. You want some tea? Could you give me an agenda? Just what, what's the next day or two gonna look like? If you, if you could lay it out, your purposes, that'd be great. Because they're probably fearing, perhaps he's gonna call down fire to judge us over some sin someone's committed. And so that's one reason for uneasiness. Two, as we heard last week, um, Samuel, even though he's advanced in age, he just hacked a king to death. Because Saul wouldn't, he picked up a sword and he killed a neighboring rival king with basically his bare hands and a sword, which that, that's a lot. That's the spirit of the Lord moving through this older man. So king killer is in town. That was front page of the Israeli Daily News. They're like, oh, 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 and here he is. The third thing is there's a lot of political anxiety. Now today we have political anxiety and like our president tweets. Back then, 
If you were helping Samuel, Samuel who's like beefing with Saul now, perhaps Saul might come back through the town and kill everyone for helping him. So you can see why the elders are like, hey, glad you're here. Let's talk. Um, So, but Samuel's cooler and cool. Look what he says in verses five and six. Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So the people flip pretty quick. They go from cringing to lining up to be consecrated. And consecrated is a fancy word that means holy or set apart. And in this day, it would mean, hey, everyone take a bath. Everyone put on your best clothes. I'm gonna bless you. Now let's go to the sacrifice. We're gonna honor the Lord and we're gonna throw a barbecue. And so they all show up and you can imagine it. I want you to picture it. Picnic tables are put out, couple hundred people, every kid, every adult, every wife, every person you know is here. The stars are out because, you know, big starry skies back then, always in my visions of the Old Testament. And it's just a perfect night. Fire's lit, the sacrifice has been made. And one by one, because remember, Samuel didn't say why he's there. He starts looking over the sons of Jesse. They start coming out of the shadows and he sees Eliab and is like, man, now that's a dude. We'll learn next week, he is a warrior. He is this proven baddest man in Bethlehem. He is the guy you want to lead Israel. And then God stops Samuel on a dime because this has happened before. This happened with King Saul. Eliab is Saul 2.0 in his looks and his stature. Look what he says in verse seven. This is the Lord. It's so cool. We get a conversation with God personally to his prophet Samuel. The Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the thing, things people look at. People look at outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what we're learning. The Lord values above all things. He values the heart. That's what God is looking for. And Samuel is leveled at this because he was about to commit the same error that we committed with Saul. Look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 9, verse 2. This is the description of Samuel. And Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Remember, this isn't his mama retelling the story. This is the Bible saying he's the most handsome man on earth. From the shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And Kish doesn't mean much to us now, but Kish back then was a famous family. So when we pick King Saul, the king that's been rejected, the king that sinned, the king that the spirit of the Lord has departed from, the king that didn't obey, he was the handsomest man in all of Israel. So he kind of looked like maybe Irdis Elba, you know, he got to going on. He's in every leading role. And he's also kind of Prince William. Family of Kish is the family you want to marry into. Man, these were, these were awesome dudes. And so we have Prince William with Irdis Elba looks, and he's a foot taller than the head of everyone else. And to be honest, as a 5'8 guy, I'm a little jealous just talking about it, all right? Why's height got to matter? Why you got to bring it into this again? But back then, dude, Saul was the dude. He's like the rock. I mean, he is 
if there's someone who's gonna be king, it's gonna be Saul. And when the first look Samuel takes at Eliab, he goes, the new Saul, maybe this one will have better obedience. But we see the Lord says, I don't care about his looks. I don't care about his family's fame. Jesse's just a nobody in Bethlehem. In fact, grandmother of Jesse is Ruth in the Bible. But we think Ruth, good thing. But back then they thought Ruth, not a part of Israel. She came in by choice, not by blood. So we have this mixed blood, Jesse. Sons are shepherds and other things. Guy in the middle of nowhere. I want one of his sons. I don't care about looks and thank the Lord he doesn't care about height. But what the Lord does care about and answer a question is the Lord cares about the heart. It's a wonderful line here. It says the Lord looks upon the heart. And that line, that sentiment has launched literally thousands of plots of movies and plays and songs. It's captured our imagination of virtually the entire human race. Disney doesn't even have a business without that line. It's the plot of every movie, Frozen, Moana, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast. It's all that there's something inside that matters more than the outside appearance. Don't trust in the outside. Yes, my daughter is too. We do a lot of movie watching. Also, I'm concerned about screen time, you know? Um, We are a people, even though that captures our imagination, we are a magazine culture. We are a culture that loves outside appearances and praises it relentlessly. We do, our culture does, even church culture can, but the Lord's clear message here is the Lord is intently concerned about our hearts. So with God whispering in Samuel's ear, suddenly none of the sons look like much of a good idea. Look at verse eight. Jesse called Abinadab, Maybe Abinadab's like the businessman if uh, Eliab was the warrior. (laughs) Businessman Abinadab had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shammah pass away. Maybe he's the artist, the singer, the, the, the cool one, the skinny jean shepherd. But Samuel said, not this one. The Lord has not chosen this one. And they don't even name the rest of the sons. Look at verse 10. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And remember, they don't totally know what's going on. I like to imagine it's like the final two minutes of Survivor. Campfire, you're off the island. And they're just putting out torches left and right, sending the sons away. People are confused. They're getting desperate. We've made this sacrifice. The, the food is ready. And yet Samuel's talking about something, how this one's not ready and this one's not right. And so out of kind of awkwardly, Samuel just blurts this out. Verse 11, yo, Jesse, is this all the sons you got? Is this all we got? Because Samuel's heard from the Lord, one of them's supposed to be king, and I see seven, and none of them have made the cut. The Lord is whispering in his ear. And Jesse responds, there is still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so Samuel stops the party. Things grind to a halt. And we get frustrated at like Thanksgiving when someone prays too long. And we're like, come on, y'all, come on. We know we're giving thanks, but the food is here. Imagine just standing there, waiting waiting for your runt little brother. Who knows where he is? 
The stakes go from hot to cold. The flies come in. The night air just gets colder and colder. And they all are waiting. And I doubt they're waiting very happily since Jesse, the father, didn't even value David enough to bring him to the sacrifice, to bring him to meet the great prophet who was in town, probably the only time in his life, even bring him in for dinner. Jesse had valued the sheep more than his eighth son. And back in that day, there was a phrase. It said, seven sons of blessing. It meant that you were complete once you had seven sons, that the Lord had blessed you. And here we have this eighth son. They went and got him. I don't know how long it took, probably hours. There's no quick way to find a shepherd and get him in the middle of the night back. And this is what it says, verse 12. So they sent for him. And they brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes with handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took a horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went home to Ramah. If Saul and Eliab were Prince William with Eardis Elba looks, the way the text is presenting David is like a young Michael Sarah or maybe a young Aziz Ansari. He is not exactly the guy that we're trusting all the chips in to lead us in war. He is not the kind of guy. And you can see this in the text because Eliab is presented as the man and he's the eighth son. They don't even mention the sisters. So at at least David is 10 years younger than Eliab if he has seven brothers ahead of him and sisters probably. And more likely, he's more like 20 years younger than Eliab. And furthermore, it says he's handsome and you could think, oh, he's handsome like Saul. But to say he has beautiful eyes and handsome features is kind of the description you would give to a woman. David is youthful. He's a middle school boy. He has not entered any shape of warrior-ness He's a shepherd and he's just doing his best out there at this point. He is not the man that you would think would lead Israel soon. All of his brothers are probably sneering and have no idea why this is really happening. And we see, we shouldn't be surprised, but it comes as surprising that the dirty, the missed, the consecration, the forgotten is the one God chooses to use because he's seen David's heart. The word he uses in the first verse for choose is the same word as look upon the heart. When he chose him long before David ever got anointed, long before he knew Samuel was in town, long before this scene or this, di or this dinner, God had chosen and looked upon David's heart and made his choice for king. And this smells like, it sounds like 1 Corinthians 1.27. Instead, God chose the things of the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And, the, and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. That's the pattern as you read the Old Testament and even the New. Paul is so beat up and shipwrecked and suffering so much, other Christians start doubting Paul's call because they're like, dude, you're suffering too much. Life goes so poorly for you, Paul. How can God's blessing be in your ministry? And we see over and over, God uses the weak, the outcasts, the brokenhearted to fill their heart with the love of God, 
passion for God's glory. And why, why is David God's man? Why is David the one who, he opens this horn of oil and he slowly is pouring it down David's literal face. This is a visceral moment, kneeling in the dirt with oil coming all over his face. And he probably doesn't have a beard, so it's just running right off and hitting the floor. And his brothers are silent and David is silent. No one even says anything. Why is he God's man? Well, Acts 13, 22 summarizes an earlier prophecy of 1 Samuel 13, 14. This is what God says about David's specialness. David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to. David is God's man because David's heart is God's. Eliab, Saul, the brothers, they're not God's man because their heart is not for God. This is a dramatic story. The fortunes of the nation of Israel and in many ways, the entire world hang on that night in Bethlehem. And we could leave it there as a dramatic story, but I wanna turn with us and consider ourselves, consider us as a church and think through three big applications, three big things that as we look at the text, we need to receive in our heart and to think about. And the first is that it's obvious, but we must not trust in outer appearances. That's what man trusts in. But the Lord trusts and values the heart. And there's different ways we all do this. Some of us, it might be social media. I know that's mine. I'm elated when things go well. When I share them, they're liked and they're shared and I'm deflated when they just kind of go off into the internet night. And it's so much that I've had to get off of it on and off for the past couple of years because I realized that there's no way to live, not concerning the heart, but concerning something so external that would have that governance over my life. And social media is not bad. Many of us use it for a living and it's a part of our career, but how we use things matters and it can be a dangerous thing. And if it's not social media, maybe it's your credit card statement. Maybe as you look up and down, you realize we're overspending or spending too big of a proportion on external things, where we should be investing in internal things and generosity and how we live. We've, dis- we've put our, our heart is on display in our credit card that outer things are what really matters. Or maybe it's not either of those. Maybe it's dead religion. This is what uh, David, uh, this is what Jesus constantly critiques the Pharisees for. They got it all right on the outside. They're going to church. They're memorizing scripture. They're wearing the right thing. They're doing the right thing, but their hearts are far from him. That doesn't work either. Whether it's social media or money or power or or religiosity, everything that is external must come from an internal place that loves and worship God or it's worthless. It's not worthless valuing because God values the heart, not external. The second thing that kind of leads us out of this, and the problem with trusting outward appearance, it's a surefire way to miss God's purpose in your life. Trusting in the outward appearance is a surefire way to neglect your own heart. Trusting in our appearance is a way not to offer a broken heart to God, a heart that he can use and get glory from. And second, if our first was a warning, I hope this leads us to a wonder. And the wonder is, how can I get a heart like David's? I know I read that, a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart. I want a heart like that. 
I know you want a heart like that. If you're in Christ, you want your heart to be full of God and for God. And the question is, how do we get there? And we'll see it. And I want you to watch for it every week in the rest of the David series. Is David, even though he's flawed, even though he's broken, even though he makes mistakes, is this man who is raging for the glory of God. He is making decisions, slaying giants, getting victories because he is consumed with the glory of God. He sees it as his highest value. And the way we see God and his glory as the highest value is by treasuring him. Look what Jesus has to say about treasuring in Matthew 13, 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven, which is just a fancy way of Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom all put together. God is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had to buy that field. He went in his joy to sell all he had to buy the field. And what treasuring Christ is, what treasuring God is, is finding the treasure. It's like gold in a field and just pushing the dirt away and realizing there's just more treasure. The more dirt you push, there's just more treasure. Treasuring God is literally seeing the worth, the value, the weight, the supremacy of God in the field. And your life's goal is to push more and more dirt away because when we see the value that God already has, He's infinitely valuable without us. When we see the value that God already has, we we reevaluate everything in our life. Everything we value comes under scrutiny of something we know that has infinite worth. And it doesn't mean we don't care about the things in our life anymore. It might end up you start loving your spouse more, start loving your friends more because you get value in that because of what Christ has done and that he made them and he saves them but we reorder everything in our lives. That's what it means. He goes and sells everything. He's reordered his life because he needs the field. He wants to uncover and treasure Christ more and more and more. And this treasuring of Christ, this experience of the gospel, of pushing the dirt away is how our heart starts to beat for God's. It's not enough just to pray a prayer and, and abstractly know that we're saved or abstractly know God. It's this uncovering of treasure that renews us and fires our heart to be after God's own heart. And I wanna give you an opportunity, all of us together right now, to treasure Christ as a group. Right from this text, we see God knew David's heart. He knew Saul's heart. He knew Samuel's heart. He knew all those people's heart. And guess what? That means he knows your heart too. He knows my heart. He knows the absolute worst of me. He knows my worst thoughts, my darkest moments, my hidden moments. There's nothing the eyes of the Lord can't see. Look how Jesus describes it in Matthew 15. But the words you speak come from your heart. That's what defiles you or makes you unholy. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. These are what make you defile you, make you unholy. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. And sure, things around us can influence us. Running with a certain crowd might, might influence us too. We need to watch what we consume as people too. But public enemy number one for you is your own heart. Take Jesus's word for it. Public enemy number one for me of loving and treasuring Christ is my own heart. 
The big problem isn't out there, it's right here. And that's sobering truth. And here's the gospel turned to treasure. Here's the pushing back the dirt. That's not enough to push back the dirt. That's just learning a reality of what the sky's like. That's just true all the time. Pushing back the dirt is this, that Jesus sees the dirty, broken, worst parts of us. He sees them and doesn't blink. God is not shy. He sees and Jesus sees and he takes all of the worst parts and thoughts, things we would never actually follow through, but we thought he takes all of that, all of our worst deeds that we actually did, the things we've been convicted for, things we haven't been convicted for. He takes all of that and he pins it to himself on the cross because God sees our worst and says, I love you anyways. And that's how we push back the dirt a little more today. That's how we start to see the supreme worth of God. There's no more hiding or pretending or performing to earn his favor. The only favor we will ever have is found in Christ Jesus, the one who looked at the worst of us and gave us his best on the cross. That is our only hope. That is pushing back the dirt. And I want us to treasure Christ in that. Look, don't take my word for it. Look at Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. He didn't die for our potential. He didn't die for our personality. He didn't die for our future good deeds. Christ died when he saw the worst of our heart while we were still sinners, before we were born, before the foundations of earth. He chose us and chose us in love. And that's the radical love, the treasure that's worth reevaluating your whole life. And the only way we'll get a heart from God, only way we'll get a real heart that beats, the only way we'll be Geppetto's Pinocchio that becomes a real boy is because we see the mighty worth of God in Christ and we trust in him with all of our hearts and we are made new by the blood of the lamb. That is our hope. That is the treasuring of God. And I want you to take a step two this week as we treasure Christ, as we treasure him more and more. And the more we treasure, the more freedom we have. We have freedom. We don't have to be in fear of the worst things about us. Why? Because God's forgiven them. We don't have to be in fear of other people's opinions so we can come in our weak heart that's full of God and say, I'm struggling with this and this and this and confess and ask for help from our brothers and sisters because we might find out they're treasuring Christ too. That they're not here to judge you or hate you, but they wanna comfort you and hug you because they're treasuring the same gospel and they're struggling too. And that's how real communities form. That's living out and pushing back the dirt just a little bit more to see, oh my goodness, what God is doing in my heart, he's doing in her heart and his heart so I can be open with who I really am. I don't have to pretend before God and I don't have to perform before others anymore. I can be the real me. That's the freedom of treasuring Christ together. And that's the application to expound, find the treasure in God alone, and then share that treasure as freedom in your life. Our final application point, it's very similar. Because if the God who knows it all dies for us and loves us, I want us to worship God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. 
God died to give you a new heart and he's renewing your heart and wants you to treasure him. And we're not heads on a stick. We have a living, beating heart. And that literally says in Mark, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is what it meant in Exodus 4, that God calls a son and wants us to worship him. He wants the intimacy of worship in song. I can't think of a better place to do it when you're being led by great musicians and the words are even helping you express it to give your whole life, your loud voice, your strength and your, your soul to God in worship. That's the heart of the father. He wants that intimacy with you. He doesn't save you to make you feel guilty. He saves you to bring you, to grab you out of darkness and bring you into the light that you may know God forever and starting today. So let us worship God with all of our heart. And you might end, how did we get in 1 Samuel 16 and end of the worship of Christ? It's because the entire story of the Bible is about Jesus. Every major of the story of the Bible is about Jesus. David one day will have a great, 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 great grandson named Jesus. He will be the true king that God wants to lead his people. He will be the true king that dies to bring us back to the Father. And that's why we can worship Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our soul. Maybe it's time to leave some mourning in your life. Maybe it's time to find some freedom in what Christ has done through, through treasuring. But whatever it is this Labor Day weekend, I hope you can remember it by worshiping the God who loves you after seeing the worst in you and counts you as a son. And this is the heart of the Father beating for you, rolling through history, waiting to worship with you forever. Today is dress rehearsals for eternity. The Lord has seen the worst, yet says you're mine. If you're not a Christian today, I beg you to worship King Jesus as well. I beg you to repent of cherishing or treasuring anything above Christ and then have faith by treasuring Christ above all. If you are a Christian, I beg you to worship him with all of your heart today and knock down any wall that keeps you from going there in the power of Christ. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood shed for you. And he took a bread and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. And we take communion each week to remember that Christ's sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood is what forgives us and makes us new and gives us a new heart. But we also take it, remember he's coming back. The God who came as a lamb sacrificed for us will come back as a lion, roaring as the true heir of Judah, the son of David. We take communion. There's stations in the front for the front half of the room, stations in the back for the back half of the room. Our tradition is to break off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. Gluten-free communion is to my left, your right. So when you're ready, please come up and do so. Let me pray for us.